Well, last week we focused in on verse 13 and parked out there to unpack this idea of assurance of salvation. Having looked at the circumstances that likely led to Christians raising doubts and concerns about their own standing in the faith, we took a moment to just define what assurance of salvation is. And then after that, we made the obvious point that assurance of salvation can actually be attained in this life. It wasn't just for members of that community that should be assured of salvation, but it was actually written for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our exhortation, that we can be assured of salvation. But it's one thing to know assurance of salvation exists, but becoming personally assured that you yourself have been saved is quite a different matter. So we unpacked uh, this idea of what John meant when he says that he's written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. What are these things? Well, we looked at that and just kind of summarized the, entire, uh, the entirety of what we looked at in the previous four chapters in these two broad categories. John writes to the church here, or this community of churches, and says that if your life does not align with what orthodox practice is, teaching that is uh, in line with what the apostles taught, then you can't consider yourself to be a Christian. He says that your life must conform to the broad contours of orthopraxy and orthodoxy. And that's what we looked at. And then as a point of application, we looked at the fact that it is not only incumbent upon us to be assured of our salvation, God actually commands that we are assured of our salvation, but we should also ensure that we cultivate this in the lives of other believers. We either encourage it where we see signs of life, where we see that the things that John has written, these things are actually present in the lives of believers, but we actually are also called to discourage it if indeed we find in someone who professes to be a Christian that their lives do not meet these tests that John has written in the book of 1 John. So that's a summary of what we looked at last week. And that's verse 13. Today, we are still in the concluding paragraphs of the text. And John is ending this letter with issuing several reassuring statements all beginning with the words, we know. Seven times John uses the term we know between verses 13 and 20 with the aim of encouraging believers, with the aim of reassuring them that they had indeed partaken in eternal life and do partake in eternal life. We read things like, we know everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. And by inference, that God protects him and the evil one does not touch him in verse 18. In verse 19, we, we read, we know that we are from God. In verse 20, we read that we know that the Son of God has given us understanding. And there are a couple more we knows in that section of text. John is speaking about realities which must necessarily be true if you consider yourself to be a Christian. And our text this morning is no different. It also contains a we know. If you recall... John writes that Christians know that they have the request that they have asked of God. Now, when we think of things that we know in the Christian life, 
I don't think that answered prayer readily comes to mind in the lives of Christians. We know about things like the doctrines of grace, that God will indeed save us and keep us. We know that the world will continue spinning, that the globe will continue, and that seasons will continue as normal. We know that. We know about the second coming of Christ. We know that. But if, first, if someone was to come and ask you, what do you know about Christianity? The first thing that comes to mind isn't often, well, I know that I have answered prayer. Like, that isn't the first thought that comes to mind. So, this passage really confronts us on this point. Many times, we don't pause to reflect upon the promises that God has laid up for us in the here and the now. As I mentioned last week, Christianity is not merely a religion where you look on in the past to see what God has done through his people. Or it doesn't solely, it doesn't, uh, solely look at what God has done in the future. That isn't what Christianity is primarily about. Of course, we look and appropriate the truths of Scripture, what God has done in the past. We look at what the, the cross means. We look at what the Old Covenant means. We have a series about that. Of course, we look at what God has done in the past. Of course, we look at what God has done in the future. But sometimes we miss the fact that there are many precious promises and blessings given to Christians in the here and the now to be enjoyed today. We aren't to live out our lives thinking, oh man, I wish I was living in the time that when Jesus was here. Pastor John kind of ably dealt with that objection in his sermon series in the book of John. But we aren't to either, either think that or just think that we are to look forward to the life to come. We aren't to think, well, oh, the only thing for me as a Christian to look forward to and enjoy is when Jesus comes back and all things are made new and everything is better. That's not how we're supposed to live our Christian lives. Our mind shouldn't think, well, today is just bare toil and difficulty and we get enjoyment and we can have pleasures now. Christianity is a lived relationship with our Lord and God and these verses highlight to us just one of the joys that flow from our communion with our Lord and Savior. The particular joy and privilege we will look at today, of course, is answer prayer. But I want to unpack this further by posing a question that we will answer by just walking through the text. And the question is, why should Christians be confident that they will receive their request? To state that again, why should Christians be confident that they will receive their request? Lodge before God, of course. Well, John gives an answer that can be lifted directly from the text. The primary reason in view in this passage is that we are confident God will grant our requests because they are according to his will. But before we explore that thought more fully, consider the context within which John is writing. John has just come from talking about Christian assurance. He's taken an entire four chapters, well really four and a half chapters, to outline why Christians should be assured that they're in fact united with Christ. So at this juncture, we should be thinking that confidence in prayer falls from or happens within the context of being in relationship with Christ. What I'm driving at is this. 
Confidence in prayer is one of the key expressions of our new life with Christ. In other words, John isn't writing words that are applicable to the unbeliever and the believer alike. Though everyone on earth is commanded to pray, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't fall off on another end and say, well, if unbelievers shouldn't be confident about prayer, they shouldn't pray. No, God commands everyone to pray, but it's only believers who approach the throne of grace. It is only those who have bowed the knee to Christ in deference and faith and love that are afforded the privilege of confidence in prayer. And all of that because of the relationship we have with the Lord. And I emphasize the relationship aspect because you don't typically expect confidence when you approach a stranger with a request. You wouldn't just randomly meet someone on the road, expose your deepest longings and desires to them, and expect them to just magically think, oh yes, I should help this person. No, that would be super awkward. Firstly, but secondly, because of their relationship, they wouldn't have any reason to help me that way. Christians are united to God through faith in Christ, and now we are children of God. And as children of God, we have the heir of a benevolent father, not a stingy one. And so knowing the Lord's benevolence, we can run freely to the Lord with all of our requests, and he will hear them. The Lord doesn't merely tolerate our prayers or acknowledge them, but the word here in this context that we read of, it means that the Lord has a favorable disposition to the request of the saints. So I pause there to just make that point, that John's statement isn't a general statement about prayer that is applicable to everyone. It is a claim about a Christian experience, and that Christian experience is founded upon our relationship with the Lord. So let's get back to our primary point, which will take up most of our time. We ask the question, why should Christians be confident they will receive their requests? And the answer that we mentioned before is because they are asked according to God's will. Well, what exactly does it mean to ask according to God's will? I mean, that seems to be pretty important if John is saying we will get our requests if we ask according to his will. We will have what we ask if we ask according to his will. Well, in our modern translation of the Bible, the term will can take on various meanings based on the context. So unfortunately, it isn't as simple as simply looking at the definition of the word. Some have suggested that the context dictates that we interpret according to God's will as meaning according to God's sovereign will. By God's sovereign will, I mean that exercise of God's will that causes everything to be in conformity to whatever he desires. So whatever God wills come to pass. That's what I mean by God's sovereign will. Whatever he desires just comes to fruition. Well, the problem with this view is that the, the Lord's sovereign will is actually unknown to us ordinarily, in the ordinary course of things. In the normal life of a Christian, it's just impossible to know exactly how God will respond to each and every circumstance in, in your life or each and every prayer that you ask about. Yes, I grant the point that a Christian can get knowledge of some future occurrence, that's true, but it isn't a Christian's ordinary experience. In order for you to pray according to God's will, you have to know what God's will is. 
And you can't pray in a manner consistent with his will if you don't know what his will is. So I think that we should eliminate the idea that John means here that when we pray according to God's will, that it means we pray according to his decretive will or his sovereign will or his secret will. It's much more likely that John is referring to the Lord's perceptive will. God's perceptive will refers to his revealed precepts, his instructions, his commands that we are required to obey. So when we read that we, are, we can be confident if we ask in accordance with his will, John is referring to asking for things which the Lord has revealed we should pursue or desire. For example, it's non-controversial and clear from the scripture that we should pray to be holy. We should pray for our daily nourishment and our, our bodily ailments and the list could go on. But though the list can be long and expansive, that's, that's what John says here. It says we can ask anything according to his will. The, the list isn't, this isn't meant, when we read this qualification of, of according to his will, we aren't to think that that means that we can only summarize what we should pray for in a list of 10 things. That's not what John is aiming for. We, when we read in the scripture, we can ask anything according to his will. I think the intent of John is really to say that God's ear is open to the cries of his people. That we have freedom of access before God. But, though the list is long and expansive, prayer isn't meant to be an unguided discourse in which we just outline our wish list before God. You don't just ask for every single thing that literally comes into your mind when you go to pray. God isn't some cosmic Santa Claus that you approach with your wish list and hope that on, you know, December 25th, you're going to just get everything that you ask for. That isn't what John is saying of God. In fact, quite the contrary. Though we have free access to the Lord in prayer, Though we can ask for everything and anything, we need to be careful and thoughtful that we ask according to what God has revealed He desires for us. Praying otherwise seeks to impose our will on God and not have our will shaped by God, what God has desired for us. That is an honoring to the Lord and isn't a mark of Christian maturity. Prayer is to be regulated by the word of God. It isn't supposed to be an unaided or unguided uh, flurry of requests that you lodge before the Lord that are not informed by the scripture. But think about this, little friends. This is actually best for us. We're often so nearsighted that we have no idea what is best for us. God doesn't just see two seconds into the future like us. He has created the heavens and the earth and declared the end from the beginning. He knows what is required for our flourishing. He knows what is required to sustain us and to ensure that we are well both body and soul. We see written in the scripture by way of positive example and by way of direct teachings the things we ought to be concerned about when we go before God in prayer. I heard a memorable quote once, but I can't remember who said it. But it goes something like this. No one can hope for good if his will is a better guide than the will of God. No one can hope for good for himself, the request that he has for himself. No one can hope for good if his will 
His own will is a better guide than the will of God. And that is true wisdom. We can't think that we can pray for better things than the Lord has laid out for us. We, can't, we shouldn't think of the limitation of according to God's will as some sort of restriction that the Lord is being stingy. As Martin Luther once said, prayer is laying hold or, or not trying to get God to change his mind about his reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. That, that is what prayer is. We can't think that there are better things than that we have that we can attain that God just didn't think about. Or that in the 21st century, the Lord needs to kind of consider and not get with the times. That, that is nonsense and near blasphemy. We, we should be able to see that. The Christian is happiest when he receives from the Lord exactly what the Lord has promised to him in the scripture when he asks. Have you ever sensed the Lord's help and sustenance in the very thing you've asked that is aligned with the word? And you're acquainted with just how reassuring and precious it is for a child of God to not merely make vibrations and well, different pitches that bounce off of the wall, but to know that you are heard by God. What makes prayer wonderful is that God actually hears us and has a favorable disposition towards us. Think about that. That's what John is emphasizing in this passage. What we ought to marvel at isn't the things to be received. It isn't even the certainty with which we will receive them. What we should marvel at and appreciate, what the main emphasis of this passage is, is that though we are sinful, we may approach God confidently and be heard. The most important being in the universe is attentive to your prayers. As we read in 1 Peter 3 and verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Well, I would love to have the ear of the Prime Minister right now. I would love that, especially during COVID. I, that would be amazing to me. It would be even better for me if the Prime Minister and I were related, if I could somehow be adopted into the Motley family. That would be fantastic. My life would just be, well, in some ways simpler, in some other ways more complicated. But the point is, it would make my life easier because I could just go to the top of the chain of command with my requests. I know that the PM is likely to be able to do something about my grievances. But friends, if we can feel this way about the, approaching the Prime Minister, or having the Prime Minister's number, as she boasts about, or any high-ranking official, we can recognize then that having a, a favorable disposition from the one who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is indeed a great privilege. The angel of days does not answer to our Prime Minister. Jesus doesn't ask the G6 to gather together or the G3, the top three countries in the world, to gather together before he makes a decision. The Lord does and acts and works on behalf of his people as he sees fit and is answerable to no one. My aim, just like John, is to let you know that when you approach him with your request, the privilege of, the privilege of access to his immeasurable resources is afforded to you so that you can have certainty about your response. You just need to know that you have to ask them in accordance with his will. This is an encouragement to approach the God to approach God with 
much faith and expectation. Sometimes we approach prayer with skepticism as opposed to expectation. We approach God as someone who is either not willing to give us our requests, or we approach God as, or we approach prayer as something that you know is basically a, a hit or miss sort of arrangement or engagement with the Lord. By way of application in matters of prayer, we should concern ourselves with having an overarching principle running through all of our requests, that the Lord's will be done. For you to know the will of God, it takes some effort though. The scripture needs to not only be read, but understood and applied. The best strategy for growing in your prayer life then, is to become more and more acquainted with who God is and what he has revealed for his people through the scriptures. The more you know of God, the more we know of what he requires of us, the more our prayer lives will be aligned with the teaching of 1 John. But practically, the reason sometimes sermons like these are hard for us is because many times our perception is that we are praying according to God's will and there's nothing glaringly obvious in our lives that should hinder our prayer and yet we don't receive our requests. Some of us have prayed for days, weeks, months, years about certain things. Perhaps a lost loved one who is a family member of yours. Well, certainly it's the will of the Lord that people from every tribe, nation, tongue are saved. So what about my aunt? What about my child? I bring up the difficulty of unanswered prayer because it is a common objection to passages like these and truly a difficulty that we have to wrestle with. The objection that can creep into our minds is basically that prayer is more like purchasing a lottery ticket. You just get lucky sometimes, but many times you just don't. So how do we explain unanswered prayer? Well, it's helpful to make a distinction between what the Lord has promised He will do and what the Lord requires of us irrespective of the outcome. To make a useful comparison, God has promised to sanctify His people and we ought to pray to that end that God, has, God will sanctify His people because that's what He has ordained for us. Sanctification in the life of every Christian will happen. Even if you have spent only two minutes as a Christian, you will be further sanctified because glorification is coming. You will be more holy than you were at the time when you first trusted and believed in Christ. That is a promise. God has promised that in His Word. But on the other hand, we are not told that the Lord will save a particular person. The Lord has said that He will save people in general, but we, have, we are not told in the scripture, it is not revealed to us, it's not part of God's revealed will that he will save a particular person. We know we ought to pray for our unsaved friends, family members, co-workers. And as we will see in, verse, in the verses that follow in verse 16 and 17, there's actually some limitations in how we pray for people, but we'll get to that when we get to those verses. But the point, the point I'm making is that we can't be assured we will receive from the Lord the things that he has, he has not promised we will receive. What is clear from this passage, though, 
is that as our will is bent more and more to conform with what the Lord desires, what the Lord wills, what His preceptive will is in the scripture, the more and more we will see our desires fulfilled. Practically, what that means is that sometimes you may begin praying and think that this is what the Lord wants done, and after reading the scripture and getting counsel with people and studying or hearing teaching on a particular point, you may realize that maybe this isn't what you ought to be praying for. Maybe the Lord has something else in store. Passages like this are actually instructive for us because sometimes it may be that we actually aren't praying according to God's will. And we also need to be confronted with that. Sometimes our confidence may be misplaced because we're not doing as the scripture has prescribed. But ultimately, sometimes we just don't know the reason that we have an answer for it. Like, I don't think that we can say that it's formulaic. I don't think that we can say we understand exactly how the Lord works in every situation or in every circumstance. That isn't the case. And anyone who boasts of, of something such as that is really just proud and, and doesn't know what they're talking about. Sometimes we just don't know why the Lord has not granted us a particular prayer request. And so sometimes we just have to leave it in the Lord's hands and say, Thy will be done. And actually in doing so, we're actually conforming ourselves to what John has written in this short passage of scripture. Brothers and sisters, we can be confident that the Lord answers prayer. We have a great Savior who has brought us into fellowship with the Lord. But we have to be careful that we don't end up like Abiram and Dathan and Korah, who offered strange fire. We can also offer strange prayers to the Lord, asking for things that we ought not to ask for. Prayer is actually regulated because it's a part of worship. Prayer is regulated by the scripture. And so we should seek in all instances to conform ourselves to what the scripture said. We do not plead against his reluctance, but we know from the teaching of 1 John that we are laying hold of his willingness. Let's consider that, try to apply that, and also sing in response now. Number 164, if you're following the hymns of grace, what a friend we have in Jesus.